Good morning, everyone. Um, if I've not met you before, my name is Chad. I'm pastor of this congregation. Wonderful to have you with us. Normally, we would invite you to join us for um, morning tea at the end, but we are having uh, church lunch. So if you don't have plans for lunch, please stick around and join us and get to know us a little bit better that way. We have been going through this series on um, eight basic Christian doctrines or teachings, and by now, hopefully, you have picked up that every week we end up talking about Jesus. And this is not a mistake, and you will see that as we go through all of these doctrines that are on the screen, we will make reference to Jesus throughout. Um, and there are reasons for this. First of all, you notice the Christian doctrines. These are Christian doctrines. Um, we are followers of Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Um, it's a title given to him. It just means God's son, God's king, God's Messiah. So if we are Christians, then all this has to do with him. But if we can have our next slide, we can also understand that the whole Bible really is written about uh, Jesus. And so today we have a chance to turn specifically um, to the teaching of, of who Jesus is and, um, and what he came to do, um, but all of these doctrines will ultimately point um, to Jesus. One of the things we're going to do today is to spell out two very important teachings about Jesus. That is that Jesus is 100% and completely human, and he is 100% and completely God. And whether you are new to the Christian faith or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, these doctrines are incredibly important. Let me just give you one example of that. Um, from time to time, you may experience this. I get a knock at my door. Some people, often dressed fairly nicely, will turn up. They will say, um, we are Christians, and we've come here to tell you some, some news. But when you ask them where they come from, you will discover that they are what we call cults, which really just means a breakaway group. Uh, it doesn't mean that they go off and practice sacrifices or anything. It just means that they have broken away from the Christian faith. And while they claim to be Christian, when you press them and ask them about Jesus, because we have a Christian faith, who do you think Jesus Christ is? There are two ways that they always depart. Number one, they will say, Jesus isn't really God. Um, he's God-like, but he is not the perfect image of the invisible God, as we've heard in the Scripture. And they will dart around the Scriptures and pull out this verse, that verse, and the other verse to make, to make their point. But, but they don't believe that he's God. But they also reject that he is human. Um, in fact, a lot of them will come right out and say, if you ask them enough, he, he was an angel. Uh, and angels could appear and look like people. He was an angel who came into the world and then sort of disappeared at some stage. So he is neither human nor God. And this is really significant because if he's not God, he doesn't show us who God is. If he's not really human, then he is not our human savior. And then that takes off into a whole other range of ways in which people are saved. So these things are pretty important. They're not just little um, intricacies of our faith. They're vital to what we believe. So we can begin to, um, if we can just have our next slide, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so we can see that 
Jesus said that he, he is the beginning of our faith, and he is the end of our faith, and he is the very um, center of our faith. So if we can just go to our next slide, we can begin tracing the doctrine of Jesus right back from the beginning. Um, and so this comes from Genesis 1.26, and God said, let us make man. Let's just take note of, let us. God said, let us. Who is us? Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. They shall rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, and the whole earth, and all of the creeping things. So it raises this question right back in Genesis. Who is the us? And what does it mean that humans are to be created in God's image? What does that mean? Well, what does that, what does that look like? And what does it mean that we're meant to rule over God's creation? Well, if we can just move to our next slide, and this is part of the, the Bible reading that you've just heard, suddenly we get the answer to these questions in the New Testament from Colossians 1. This is just 15 to 17. The Son, speaking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. doesn't really sound like an angel, does it? Um, he, he is the very image of the invisible God. He is the exact representation of who God is. But he is also, because he is God in the flesh, the image or the blueprint for humanity. So when God made us in his image, what is that meant to look like? It's meant to look like Jesus. That's what we were created to look like. What does it mean to, to rule over God's creation? Well, throughout the scriptures, when we see Jesus calming the storm and healing the sick and raising the dead and driving out demons. We see someone with God's authority operating with God's authority on the earth. So Jesus becomes the perfect image of who God is. We can see what he looks like, but also the blueprint for what human beings are supposed to be. And we're also told the us all things were created by him and for him. He is the Son of God who was with his Father in the beginning. So if we can just go to our next slide, we're going to now begin to look at the, the first doctrine, uh, the first teaching about Jesus, that Jesus is 100% God. Um, the deity of Jesus, which just means the godness of Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus is? is God in the flesh. Now, there are many verses in the Bible that talk about this, but because I don't want to just dart around from verse to verse, really one of the best scriptures that you can use if you want to explore that is to, to open John's gospel, the one that we heard read, because John explores Jesus' humanity and deity from one end to the other in a very systematic and very logical kind of way. So we're just going to look at John's gospel very quickly, if we can just go to our next slide. We're told in the Bible reading today, in the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's interesting that Jesus here is, is portrayed as the Word of God, and it's an interesting portrayal because words are the way that we express ourselves. Words are the way that we explain ourselves. But when we speak about God's Word, we're also talking about God's will. The scriptures that we've heard read, we call these the Word of God. And what is unique about God's Word is that God isn't like us. I, I sometimes say things, you know, I'll be arguing with Carissa maybe, and later on I'll say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. That was the wrong thing. I take that back. But God's Word is pure, and it is 100% right and truth and accurate. So God's Word just represents God's will. And so when we hear that God's Word was with him in the beginning, and how did he create? He said, let there be light with his words. You know, let there be a heaven and an earth with his words. All things were created with God's Word. And who is that Word? Well, it's just Jesus is described as the Word of God. But we're told that he was with God, and literally it says, um, it's, a hard, it's a hard translation to bring out, but it says he was face-to-face with God, and yet he was God. So it's trying to draw out two things. The word isn't one and the same, but, at this, but he is also, he is facing God, but at the same time, he is God. Um, so it's, I've mentioned this earlier, that the mystery of the Trinity is not that somehow, do, how do we take two things and pretend that it's one? But the fact that the Son and the Father are so perfectly the same in their mind, in their heart, in their will, in their purpose, that even though we have two persons, it is one and the same God. And so the Word was with God, the Word was God, and all things were made through Him. But that's not where it stops, because if you just look at those references, and I'm just going to run through them quickly, you can look them up on your own. John keeps spelling this out all the way through the scriptures. So in John 10.30, Jesus will say, I and my Father are one. Again, not meaning physically one and the same person, but we are one. We are one in purpose and mind and heart and in will. And then um, he also points out in, in John 8, he says, about the father of the Israelite nation, Abraham, who lived 2,000 years before Jesus. Before Abraham was, I am. Some of you will remember when we went through the I am series in John's gospel. We said that was the name that God gave to himself, I am. And we know that the Jews who heard Jesus speak these words understood what he was saying because we're told they picked up stones to stone him. And he said, why do you try to stone me? He says, because you, a mere man, are making yourself out to be God. They understood what Jesus was saying. And towards the end of John's gospel, in John chapter 14, his disciples say to him, you've been trying to tell us all this stuff about God. Just show us your Father, and then that will be enough for us. Just show us God, and then we'll believe. And he says one of the most, it always makes me get a little bit tingly in the skin. Jesus said, to his disciples, have I been with you for so long and you don't know who I am? If you have seen me, then you have seen my Father. 
In other words, God has been standing in your midst all of this time. And finally, after Jesus' death and resurrection, if we can just go to our next slide, John caps off his gospel where Jesus finally appears to Thomas, the last of the twelve to see him, and he witnesses that it is Jesus alive, and he bows down and he says, my Lord and my God. So is John trying to proclaim that Jesus is God in the flesh? Absolutely, and he does it from the first chapter all the way through. It is absolutely clear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We can just go to our next slide. But John also wants to point out to us that it's vitally important that we understand that Jesus is fully human. We sometimes call this the doctrine of the incarnation. That just literally means the enfleshment, God taking on flesh. And this is something we often think about only at Christmas, but it's not just a Christmas story. It is vital for the whole salvation story. So later in our reading today, we heard that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've mentioned this before, but literally it says that he, he set up his tabernacle in our midst. Remember those of you who went through our, our series about the wandering in the wilderness and how they, the Israelites had a tabernacle and God's glory would come down and fill the tabernacle and we're told that God would be in the midst of his people. And that's the image that he gives. Jesus has come down and built his tabernacle in the midst of his people so that we can see the glory of God. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We celebrate the enfleshment, Jesus, uh, God taking on flesh, not only at Christmas, but throughout Christ's lifetime. If we can just go to our next slide. Now, in part, we need to understand that when Jesus was born as a man, um, that he just, it just means that he is like any of us. He is just the son of man, which means the human son. Um, you might remember when we did Genesis a long time ago that Adam, the first man, his name literally meant the man. Adam just means the man. Um, and Jesus said he came to be the son of man. So in one sense, what he's saying is that he is a human son. He is one of Adam's sons, one of Adam's children, just like we are. But there's also something that's, not, that's very unrandom about Adam. Um, Christ and his life. Some of you might have traced your genealogies before, and you go, oh, wow, I came from this person or that person, or I didn't realize that. But Jesus being born into a human family was pretty significant because early in the Gospel of Matthew and also in the Gospel of Luke, we actually get family trees. We get genealogies of Jesus, and you realize that he comes in fulfillment. He became as the son to all of these important people. So, for example, Abraham, who is the father of the whole Israelite nation. God made a promise to Abraham and said, through one of your descendants, not only will Israel be blessed, but all nations of the world will be blessed. And so we're told in the genealogies, guess what? Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is that promised blessed son. 
And later on, um, David, who is Israel's first united king, he's told one of your descendants will sit on the throne and rule not only Israel, but all the nations. And we're told that Jesus is the Christ, the king, the son of David. So in a sense, there's something very specific about Jesus' genealogy because he is the son of all of these people who God made promises to. But if we can go and bring up the next slide, there's also something very important about Jesus being just like us. Maybe not all of us have the pedigree that Jesus had in his genealogy, but Jesus is Adam's son, Eve's son. He is a human son just like us. So Hebrews tells us that we have a chief priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in every way that we are, but did not sin. One of the reasons the humanity of Jesus is so important, and why it's so important not to just think that he was some angel who appeared and did magic tricks and could sort of zip off whenever he wanted to, is that Jesus committed himself to being born as a baby and growing up as a child and then into a man, living in a fallen world, going through our suffering, going through our temptation, but passing the test that no human could pass. It's cheating if he came in and didn't have to do the things that we did, but the Bible tells us that he did everything. So in Luke too. Um, we get one of the only stories about Jesus as a young child, and we're told that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So when he was a baby, his mom had to take care of him and nurse him. And you think, oh, well, he's God. He doesn't know he needed to be taken care of. He needed to have his nappies changed. He needed to be fed. He needed to be washed. He emptied himself and took on flesh because that's what humans have to do. And yes, he had to grow in wisdom and in knowledge. He didn't have, you know, 100%, you know, the <laughs> test scores in his head when he was two and three years old. He had to learn in the same way that we learn. The bottom corner, um, a picture of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness where Satan came and offered all the temptations to him that was given to Adam and to Eve, but Jesus passed the test. But we were told he went without food, without water. He was hungry. He was thirsty. And therefore, the temptation when Satan said, take the stones and turn them into bread, he was really tempted because he was really hungry. And yet he said, I don't live by just bread. I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And, of course, finally, the great evidence that Jesus is truly human is that he died. I mean, Jesus didn't come into the world to live a charmed life and say, you know what, sorry, all of you guys, the wages of sin is death, but I've never sinned, so I'm going to just zip off and go back to heaven. Jesus entered into the world and took on our flesh so that he could die the death um, that we deserve. And the fact that Jesus you know, gave up his spirit and they pierced his side, and they confirmed that he was dead, and he was in a grave for three days, is the ultimate evidence. Jesus is truly human. Jesus died. If you can just have our next slide. We mentioned 
the Apostles' Creed, and it's good for us sometimes if you've never looked at these, you know, look up the Apostles' Creed and, and read it sometimes because these are the things since the very early centuries of the church, people have often recited in church to remind them of these things. And so we referred to the first part of it when we looked at God as creator. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. But the next section, uh, before we get to the Holy Spirit, which we'll do next week, refers to Jesus. And you will see both his humanity and deity. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. In this little paragraph, you get this great encapsulation of the mission of Jesus Christ and what he had come to do. If we could just have our next slide. So we sang this song. Uh, a little bit earlier at the beginning of our service. It comes from Philippians 2. And what's really interesting about this, I'm sorry we've kind of gone off the edge a little bit, but we'll, we'll make do. Um, we sang this song, and it, in the scriptures, if you look it up in the book of Philippians, you will see it's actually written out like a poem. It is believed that this originally was a song because it's written out in typical Hebrew poetic form. Every line has a parallel line, um, and each main idea has a twin, and that's the way that Hebrew songs and poetry worked. So this first part of the song explains Jesus' humility, his descent from the highest glory down to the lowest humility. Jesus Christ being in very nature God, that's the big idea. Jesus is in very nature God. Did not consider equality with God, it's mentioned again, something to be held on to. Next line. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took on the nature of a servant. And then being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even death on a cross. Not just dying, not just did God come and enter flesh and die. He died the worst, most humiliating, most degrading death, a death on a cross. Then in the second part of the song, it takes Jesus back up to glory, if we can have our next slide. Again, all told in these parallel lines and in couples of ideas. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That includes in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know those people who come to my door sometimes and they'll, I ask them, how do you explain verses like this? And they say, oh, when they say Jesus is, he's like God. And they all use the same line. Um, I've even called them on this. And I said, it's amazing how all of you say I look just like my father. Apparently, you know, every Jehovah's Witness looks exactly like their father because they use this line. They'll say, in the same way that I look like my father, Jesus was a chip off the old block. He resembled his father. It's just a classic line that they all use. 
and I'll take them to verses like this and I'll say, so when every knee bows in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and God is pleased by this, you're not proclaiming that there are now two gods, right? You believe in only one God? Oh, no, we only believe in one God. So this other God is worshipped and proclaimed to be Lord, to the glory of God the Father. How in the world does that work? Or in Revelation 4 and 5, where every creature in heaven and on earth bows and says to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, and to the Lamb, Jesus Christ, be blessing and honor and glory and power forever. And they all bow down and they worship before the Lamb. That's a curious thing to do with an angel, isn't it? No, this is Jesus Christ, the image of God, the exact representation of his being. If we can just go to our next slide. I just found this little quote, and I thought it was a great way to sort of sum up. In Jesus, we see man as he was meant to be. In Jesus, we see what we are called to be. That's why we call ourselves Jesus followers. We're not just people who go to church or whatever. We are people who are called to follow and learn from and become like Jesus Christ because we believe that he is the image of God that we were created to be. And in Jesus, we see God as he truly is. So if you're ever saying, oh, everyone has different ideas about God, and, you know, I think this and you think that. You know, Bonnie mentioned this earlier. No, in Jesus, we see who God is and what God is on about. And that's how we know God, and that's how we enter into relationship with him. If we can just go to our next slide. If we want to know what the big idea of Jesus is, what he was on about, again, John's gospel tells us from beginning to end that Jesus came to give us true and eternal life. We all want good lives. If you ask people, what are you on about in this life? You say, well, I want to have a good life. But what does it mean? Jesus said, let me show you what a good life looks like. Let me show you what true life looks like. But I don't want to just give you life now. I want to give you a life that lasts forever, eternal life. And there are lots of references, but let me just give you the most uh, famous one, our next slide. John says, this is, this is the gospel in a nutshell, the good news. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This verse is an example of what we call the gospel. It's just a simple proclamation of the whole good news. We just go to our final slide. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the good news, that God became a man in Jesus Christ, that he lived the life that we should have lived and that he died the death that we should have died in our place. Three days later, he rose from the dead, proving that he is the Son of God and offering the gift of salvation to all who repent and believe. We're a gospel-centered church, and it's really important sometimes that we think about, well, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is a message, but it's not just a message. You know, when the government announced during the GFC, guess what, all of you are going to receive so many thousands of dollars in your bank account, just wait, in two weeks it'll be there. There was nothing you had to do. It was just good news. Great, I'm going to get some money. Um, 
It's God's message of good news, but it's also an invitation to believe. We access this good news, and we access this eternal life, we're told, by believing, by putting our faith in Jesus Christ. When we acknowledge that we are sinful people in need of a Savior, when we say to God, I'm sorry, and there's nothing I can do to make up for the sins that I have committed, but I believe that you sent Jesus Christ to show me who you are and to show me who I should be. And I believe that he died for my sins. And I believe that he rose from the dead, not just for his own good, but to give eternal life to humanity. And I believe that one day he will come to grant this gift, finally, to those who believe in him. When you believe that message, God says it's yours. You have just gained eternal life. We're going to have a chance in a moment to sing a song that again explains and proclaims this message. But before we do that, I just want to allow us a minute to contemplate this. If you are someone who's sitting here today and you think, you know, I don't know that I've ever fully understood this good news, but I think I get it now. And I want Jesus to be my Lord and my Savior. How do I access this? By simply saying to God, I believe it and I receive it and, and grant it to me. Grant your salvation and your forgiveness to me. It's yours. And if you're someone who's been a believer for a long time, let's not ever forget um, what God has done for us. He's emptied himself of everything. He's given up everything for us. And if God has given up his one and only son for us, then how much will he do everything for us that we need? We can be encouraged by this. Let's just take some time in our own hearts um, to respond to this message, and then I'll pray and we'll sing our song of response. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That you didn't send your Son into the world to condemn this world, but so that through Jesus we would be saved. I pray for those who are still considering the claims of Jesus, that you will give them eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand. And for those of us who have known Christ and follow Christ, let us never take for granted what you have done. And may we always faithfully proclaim this good news which has brought salvation to us. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to have a chance to sing a song of response. This is our way of proclaiming the good news of Jesus.